Hey there, my name is Keith, and you are listening to another episode of The Volume Knob, the songs that saved your life. This week, Louise and Running Up That Hill. friends, and welcome to another episode of TVK, which is, as you know, a storytelling show about music and not a music show where we tell stories. It's not a small distinction, even though it may sound like one. In fact, I'm often in touch with very experienced storytellers who, when they come on or when they come into the process, are somewhat concerned that they can't think of the right song. And my answer to them is always the same. If you think of a great story, the song will reveal itself. That said, this week's guest is a rarity. This week's story is not only a great personal story filled with relatable emotion, especially relatable if you're a woman who's dealt with sexism, which means if you're a woman in general, but it's also about a pretty remarkable life in music. My name is Louise Burns. I'm a singer, songwriter, producer, musician, and writer. And the song that saved my life is Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. Louise's story takes her from a hobby farm in southeastern BC to the Sunset Strip and through northern England. It's many layered, but one of my favorite themes in it is the importance of role models and how seeing someone who looks like you doing the things that you want to do can inspire you to be who you really are. Here's Louise. So I grew up in a small mountainous town in the Rocky Mountains in the East Kootenays where the air was so fresh that when you would breathe it in, if you had come out from another place, it almost felt like you were being shocked. Your system was being shocked. It was so crisp and cool and clean. I spent most of my youth on my parents' hobby farm in the rural part of town, the town of Cranbrook. And it was pretty magical. I had a horse. We had chickens that were named after the Golden Girls cast. And uh, my my entire childhood was sort of um, perfumed with the smell of, of firewood and burning fields and all that good stuff that comes with living in outdoor open spaces. Yeah, needless to say, it was a hockey town and an industrial town in uh, in the forestry industry. And I was a weirdo artist kid. (laughs) I was very much a bit of a fish out of water growing up there. So my friends and I started a girl band when we were 11 and 12 and 13 years old. And um, by, I guess, a series of crazy, miraculous events, our greatest dream, which was to become a famous pop band, actually kind of came true. Louise and her bandmates had recorded a demo, which they sent to Jonathan Simpkin, who was most famous for being the lawyer for Nickelback. He liked it, and one thing led to another. 
We actually were signed by Maverick Records, which is a major label co-founded by Madonna, and they flew us down to L.A. when we were really young. In a pretty short period of time, Louise went from the fields of Cranbrook to having Madonna invite her and her bandmates to babysit her kids. It was a pretty wild transition. Every day when I'm living in L.A. is mind-blowing. I am no longer cleaning up my horse's manure from from her shed. I am now going to the offices of Warner Brothers, and I am, you know, meeting all these very famous people, some of which I don't even know they're famous because I'm so young and naive, and I guess just living a really crazy life, and it was very exciting. I was living in the Oakwoods apartment complex in Los Angeles, and those of you who are listening who are familiar with the entertainment industry, particularly in L.A., know that the Oakwoods is sort of synonymous with child star, destruction, sadness, failure, and (laughs) broken dreams. But I didn't know this at the time because I was a teenager from Cranbrook. The celebrities of our day were Jennifer Love Hewitt and J-Lo and all these people I was suddenly seeing in person driving their cars down Sunset Boulevard or at a restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard. And it was just a really crazy different life for me to be thrown into. It was all kind of the most thrilling. um, It was the most thrilling thing until it wasn't. I guess I'll just say that. Louise and her bandmates, the band was called Tiger Lily until they changed it to Lilix, were being processed, squeezed through the Hollywood star machine. The result wasn't always pretty. One of the most, I guess you could call it, classic music industry moments, because this does happen to a lot of people, unfortunately, but our our record label, when we were finished recording our record, Our label said to our manager that they would not release it until two of the girls had lost weight. And we're talking about 16-year-olds here. Like, this isn't like a bunch of 25-year-old women who would be, like, still offended by that, but at least able to process it in a healthy, maybe healthy way. But at 16, it's just not. That's not something you can receive well. So, uh, I mean, I remember getting that phone call. I... It was in Cranbrook. I had just come in from a horseback ride, feeling pretty good about life. My manager calls me, and he just—he's upset too. Like he's devastated, and he's like, "I'm so sorry. I don't even—I don't even know how to say this, but they're not going to release the record until uh, the two girls, like, will will agree to go agree to go to fat camp, basically." If I had a daughter, and if I had a 16-year-old daughter, and somebody had said that to her, I would be like getting my. I would be, I don't even know what I would do. It makes me want to punch a wall right now thinking about it because it's just, it's just not, it, it just, it, it's what's wrong with the world. You know, it's like a little tiny little example of what's wrong with, with the world <laughs> right there. Lilix's record, Falling Uphill, came out in May of 2003 in the middle of Avril Lavigne mania. It was a gigantic Hollywood project with tracks produced by huge names like The Matrix and Linda Perry and Glenn Ballard. And the input of literally dozens of people, there are 10 drummers and a drum machine programmer credited in the liner notes. It should have been a dream come true, but it wasn't. 
we were, you know, we were accused of not playing our instruments, and we were accused of, you know, sleeping our way to the top, and you know, not like having any creative control over what we were doing, which is crazy because we started out literally as a basement band. So、um, it was just a really weird feeling. Living out your dream, knowing that you're living something very privileged and extremely rare, but also feeling very frustrated and very torn, and you add adolescence to that, which kind of adds a bit of edge to whatever you're going through in your life. It just was, a, it was a lot, and it ended up leading to a lot of、uh, issues for me mentally. I was experiencing a lot of depression, and、um, I developed a pretty severe eating disorder. All of this stuff was just controlling my life, or what little I could of it. And I think probably the 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 pinnacle moment for me that summarized the negative side of what we were going through was being on tour. I mean, I'll never forget it. I was on tour in the middle of the Midwest in this hotel room, and gosh, I don't know, the middle of it could have been Michigan. I don't know where it was. Yeah, we were, I was on the on the phone with this interview, which I knew I understood was a syndicated radio interview with some major top forty station, which we were trying to get them to play our song on. So. You have to kind of be really nice and bubbly and friendly and like please play our song, but also like yeah, like I'll answer your questions in an interesting way. This this man, I, I don't know his name and I forget the station. Otherwise, I super call him out right now. But this man said to me、uh, in this joking, very condescending way, he was like, "So are you a virgin?" And I just remember being like, "Oh my god, I'm 17. I'm by myself. I don't. I'm on tour." I'm stressed out, and I felt so violated. It was just an awful feeling, and I, I kind of just, I didn't know what to say. And I was really lucky that there was a female co-host with him who was kind of like, "Don't, what are you doing? Like, you know, haha, like, don't say that." And then I didn't have to answer, but it was the most awful feeling. Just, just, I mean, not only being put on the spot and made feel awkward because you're a teenager and you're not ready to talk about those feelings yet necessarily. But also because he, it just was a sign that this man wasn't taking me seriously for what I did, and that was that was the biggest thing for me. I think is like, okay, I'm not being taken seriously. I'm working my ass off, as are my bandmates, and I feel like I'm almost being laughed at for doing what I love. But it wasn't just a promotion process that Louise found hard, even making the music. Left her feeling kind of odd. Can we talk about the musical transformation? Yeah, there, <clears throat> our first single, "It's About Time." It was when we recorded it. We were in LA, and it was really, actually, a really positive experience. The team, the Matrix, were the the producers and writers that we worked with, and we all co-wrote the song together, and we all played instruments and. You know, saying, and then we left LA and we got our first cut back of the the rough mix, and they had replaced, I think, all of our instruments with with their own. And again, like I'm not as a producer nowadays. I'm like, yeah, I mean, maybe my bass track wasn't great. That's fair, but also like they were they sure weren't worried about that at the time. You know what I mean? That wasn't their job. Their job was to get a, a song for the label that sold lots of records. So I get that. But it was very—it's very weird, sort of hearing, listening back, and, and not recognizing a single thing you did, but you know it's your voice.
what pop music does is and in a way for some people they see themselves in pop music and when you see something like that reflected back at you especially for myself seeing myself reflected back to me and not recognizing myself it's very disorienting it's very disorienting you're living out this dream you're you're working at your dream job but you're also being told that you are not in order to in order to be here you have to completely change who you are therefore you're like where do i belong why am i here and it is a very weird feeling because of that tension of like feeling this guilt of the privilege that you're experiencing but also this lack of control and disconnection from yourself and you just feel you just feel gross it's a weird it's a thing that you don't want to feel <laughs> and when again when you're a teenager everything is so so much more it's just so much heavier because you don't have the cognitive tools to deal with this stuff Lilix ended up recording one more album for Maverick before the label folded. Around the time that second record came out, Louise took an invaluable trip to visit family in the UK. This was our first Christmas ever spending over there with the family. So we're chilling at my aunt and uncle's house in this really cute, small, quaint village near Manchester. And uh, again, it's it brings me back to my youth. It's pastoral. There's horses everywhere. Lots of, uh, you know wily windy moors to walk upon which I loved we were listening to my uncle's mixtape which was on a CD back in the day again this is a long time ago and on the CD he had an arrangement of Christmas songs a lot of them I knew a lot of them I didn't it was a lot of like British singers I wasn't familiar with but there was this one song that kept coming up every you know every hour because it was only an hour long CD and it was this song I just heard it and I'm like what is this oh my god what is this voice the harmonies the way she was singing the way that the melodies were just crazy and really like just almost just really risk-taking songwriting and it blew my mind i knew it was old too i knew it wasn't fresh and, and new like uh, everything else that that was coming out at the time so i asked my uncle i'm like when it came to the song next time I'm like what is this tell me what is this and my uncle's like oh that's kate bush <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my God, Kate Bush, like, who is that? So I had my little laptop with me, and I, I logged on to Napster, and I downloaded anything I could find. But I eventually found, by accident, this song, Running Up That Hill. And when it came on to my Napster, and then later a burnt CD, it just like, I don't know, it just took me somewhere else. It took me back home to a place I'd never been before, if that makes sense. I sort of felt like I was coming home to a place that I belonged that didn't exist. And I, being an obsessive person, I, I just was immediately like, I gotta learn everything I can about this person. Like, who is Kate Bush? What really 
really resonated with me is that Kate Bush was a songwriter and she was a producer. And that was so big to me because production has been something I've always loved but never thought I could do myself because, you know, at the time I was 19 or 18 and it just seemed unheard of to, to be interested in working behind the board, especially from the experiences that I'd had where I was told I couldn't even be involved at all half the time. So, um, so for me, finding Kate Bush was kind of like finding... It was like finding my ultimate influencer, if you will. <laughs> she was just this icon to me of, of strength and power and self-ownership and self-possession and, and just somebody who didn't give a flying F about anything. She just wanted to do her own thing and she, didn't, she did not listen to anybody. She just did her own art. And I think that was the most inspiring thing to me because it's still great. It's still commercial. It's pop. It's, it's really, it's risk-taking, but it's really, really beautiful and I think that to me it changed my life because it gave me a focus and it made me realize that not everything had to look like uh, in music what I had been doing and it's it led me down a path where I said okay I want to be I want to be an artist like Kate Bush (laughs) I want to be in control of my art I want to I want to follow my vision through and I want to be in control and I want to be a producer and I want to write my stuff and I want to produce my stuff because I we had been writing in lyrics we were songwriters but I wanted to just do the. I wanted to be in control of the whole picture and that's what she's done Louise has released several solo albums, two of them, 2011's Melodrama and 2017's Young Mopes, were long-listed for the Polaris Prize, Canada's version of the Mercury. She's also behind the board, mentoring other artists. I guess if you can really look at my life today, she did save my life because now I am living what I think is my actual authentic dream, which is I'm producing and I'm songwriting and I'm working with a lot of young women who I I hope to inspire and make them feel empowered because my experience wasn't like that. The only way I can approach it is I want to take that energy and I want to give it to people and make them feel empowered so they don't have to feel those things that I felt. Because it doesn't matter if you fail or succeed, it just matters if you follow your art. friend, thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a weekly exploration of personal stories through the power of music. It's produced by Semlum and Audio, and it's made entirely by me, the podcast producer who has also babysat for Madonna. My name is Keith Siri. If you haven't already, I'd be honored if you shared this episode or one of your favorites with someone you know who loves great stories. If you do social media, you can also follow the show on Twitter at Volume Knob 1, that's the number one, or on Instagram at Volume underscore Knob. Be sure to get over to www.volumeknob.net where you'll find links to other information about Louise, including her Bandcamp page. The show notes for this week also include a link to a playlist of music inspired by Louise's story. It's got a focus on pop with female lead vocals, and I've called it Unaware I'm Tearing You Asunder. Finally, many thanks to Kate for her 30-second review of Running Up That Hill. So, tell me what you think. 
Okay. Well, first of all, I have to say that this song is basically my blood because I've heard it ever since I was like, well, who knows when. Um, well, probably you guys. Anyway, but I like this song. You know, there are certain lines that speak to a human inside of most people. Like what? Like the, the come on, darling. Because technically, you could be a male. So it should be like, come on, dearling. <laughs> that sounds like the, like the male version. Like the baby deer. No, but it sounds like the baby deer version. Like, dearling. See you again next week on The Volume Knob for more stories about the songs that saved your life.